Welcome to the 233rd installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. While walking in a hilly pasture above the Palm de Terre River in western Minnesota recently, I was struck by how a relatively small investment in public agricultural research can go a long ways. The pasture was located at the University of Minnesota's West Central Research and Outreach Center. Dr. Brad Hines, a dairy scientist at the center, was showing me how research into managed rotational grazing has helped improve the productivity and resiliency of the pasture. Indeed, on this particular October day, area row crop fields were swamped with excessive moisture. While the grazing paddocks were soaking up the rain and producing high-quality forage for the Outreach Center's dairy herd. In the distance, I could see solar rays that WC Rock, as it's called, has erected to research the integration of grazing and green energy. Wind generators are standing on a nearby hill, and Heinz explained to me that the station's milking parlor was using innovative heat capturing technology and other tricks to reduce energy consumption. In fact, through such innovations as a reclamation system that removes heat from milk and stores it for the dairy's cleaning system, the parlor is already 80% towards being a zero-net user of electricity. Heinz and his colleagues are also researching the health benefits of grass-based livestock products, as well as ways of integrating soil-building cover crops into farming systems via rotational grazing. The Morrill Act of 1862 helped set up a series of land-grant institutions across the United States that would provide a practical curriculum in, among other things, agriculture. Eventually, experiment stations like the one at W.C. Rock became a key component of the land-grant system's work to conduct cutting-edge science and eventually get it out to the farms where it could be put to practical use. Numerous innovations in the areas of seed breeding, animal husbandry, and horticulture, to name a few, have come out of land-grant experiment stations. But in recent years, cuts to public research funding and a drive to privatize agricultural science have undermined support for university experiment stations. That's too bad, because with the economic, agronomic, ecological, and even climate-related challenges farmers face today, publicly funded research is needed now more than ever. And experiment stations play a significant role in doing the kind of practical science that reflects local weather, local soil conditions, and even local economic and market situations. That's why it's so exciting to see the research being done at the West Central Research and Outreach Center. WC Rock is the only land-grant experiment station in the U.S. where a certified organic dairy herd is being managed next to a conventional herd. In fact, with its 700 acres of chemical-free land, WC Rock has more organic crop and pasture acres than any other university research facility in the country. And its research into rotational grazing of dairy cattle has been on the cutting edge since it was launched in the 1990s by Dr. Dennis Johnson, Heinz's predecessor. WC Rock and other experiment stations like it don't just conduct research. They also bring farmers out onto the test plots and into the laboratories during field days and workshops to see firsthand some of the innovations that might help them on their own operations. Just as importantly, these farmers are given the opportunity to provide input to scientists about what they'd like to see researched in the future. And such locally-based, practical research takes the station's relevance beyond the agricultural community and makes its experiments critical to the public at large. Work to reduce dairy farming's carbon hoofprint should interest all of us, no matter where we live and work. 
That's important to keep in mind as Heinz and other researchers eye future projects and the need for public funding to support more innovative research. Through its work at the state legislature, the Land Stewardship Project and its members have pushed hard to obtain public funding for innovative research being done at the West Central Research and Outreach Center, as well as at the University of Minnesota in general. This publicly funded science is producing public goods. On the other hand, the science coming out of the test plots and laboratories of private firms is first and foremost being done to bolster the bottom line of corporate agribusiness. As LSP prepares to push for more legislative funding of regenerative ag research that can produce resiliency and profitability on farms, as well as public goods, I took the opportunity to talk to Dr. Hines about some of the science WC Rock has been involved in and where he and the other researchers would like to go next in helping farmers survive and thrive. He started out talking about a recent research project that showed the value of returning biological life to an old, worn-out pasture. We actually just finished a four-year study where we looked at pasture rotation with cover crops and cropping systems as well as grazing livestock, and it's very interesting what has happened. We took an old old pasture that was in need of rejuvenation Mm -hmm. and planted cover crops on it, and we grazed it with uh, our dairy cattle here. And then we moved it into a cropping system, corn and soybean uh, organic uh, rotation, and got uh, 190 bushel corn and uh, I think about 45 bushel organic soybean. So it was really good. And then we moved it back into a pasture rotation. I think orchard grass, meadow fescue, and clovers. And that's probably the best pasture we have here. Huh. Uh, it's really surprised. Even the workers uh, that are here are like, man, we need to do that in a lot more pastures because that is... Um, it has made that one come back alive, um, and it, it looks really good, so I'm happy with that. So it's, uh, it was uh, two, two years, two okay. years. So, we, well, we, we grazed it for a year with the cover crops. Uh, we used rye and wheat and uh, hairy vetch, and then we went into a corn soybean and then back into pasture. And, it, uh, you know, it's a fast way to rejuvenate some pastures, and, uh, it, yes, I'm very impressed with it, very uh-huh. impressed with that method that we did. So we're going to yeah. keep trying that, uh, planting some, you know, maybe probably some winter rye now to help rejuvenate a few of the pastures that we have, get them into a, a different rotation. Um, maybe help some pastures that are tired. The, we've done some other cover crops in some of the pastures, and it's really uh, brought the pastures back to life. And uh, we have some old pastures here that are maybe tired and not as much grass species in anymore, so we're going to plant some cover crops here, probably rye, and uh, we'll graze it in the spring. That's the benefit as well is we can graze our livestock in early April and sometimes late March mm-hmm. on before our other pastures uh, even start growing. So it gives us early grazing, which is a benefit as well. well I think there's a, a lot of things, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, rotation uh, of crops. Plus, you know, we had livestock in there and we have a, you know, it's just the, a lot of the hoof action from the cattle, the manure from the cattle are helping, you know, provide a fertility source. Like I said, we grew 180 bushel corn off of that and 45 bushel beans, and we didn't add any manure or anything. It was just the manure from the cattle grazing. So I think it's a, a good story that says that you can do some pasture rotation, graze with cover crops, and really you don't need a lot of added inputs to it. The The livestock are going to do it for you. This was, you know, a field that we, we could uh, farm it uh, full-time if we wanted to with corn and beans, but it just makes more sense for us to integrate livestock in it and use it as pasture and keep it in the rotation. And I think it could be used for other cropping uh, systems to integrate livestock back in the on the land. This dairy herd here is the organic dairy herd. There's also a conventional dairy herd. It, it's still the situation where it's like one of the 
few in the country, or maybe the only one where you have two side-by-side? Yeah, it is the only place uh, in the United States where you have a side-by-side organic and conventional herd sort of at the, at the same facility under the same management. And it provides some unique opportunities for us to be able to do do different research. The organic herd obviously grazes quite often. I've been actually starting to graze the conventional herd a lot more than what we have in the past. I'm also reducing antibiotic use in those. So I think by having that organic herd here, it's made us think that you know, we don't need to do things like uh, we always have with the conventional herd. We, we can look at different uh, ways to uh, uh, prevent diseases and things in animals so we don't have those problems. So we've actually, our, our conventional herd has been doing quite well. You know, it's kind of one of those almost uh, organic herd, but, but right. not certified. We've been certified organic since 2010. Okay. So it's been not quite 10 years where we've uh, had the split herd. From the comparison, well, we noticed that the, the organic herd, uh, the cows in the organic herd, probably live longer, I think about nine months longer than the average cow in the conventional herd. So there's a little more longevity there. We also found that they have higher fat and protein in their milk, and I'm very interested in the health of meat and milk, so our organic herd tends to have a little bit better omega Three higher omega threes in the milk and a bigger better omega three to six ratio. So, uh, which translates into human health. I did some <clears throat> when I first started here eight years ago. I did a, f- a study on organic beef in dairy steers versus conventional beef and found that the organic beef was much healthier than the conventional beef. You know, the omega uh, six to three ratio was about one point four in the organic uh, grass-fed type beef and I think it was eight to one in the conventional. And and we we showed that you can be profitable by grazing uh, dairy steers on, on pasture. You don't need to raise them in the feedlot. We actually made more money by grazing them full-time and grass-feeding them than what we did conventionally. We did a study once where we, we uh, looked at alternative forages on pastures. So we looked at perennial pastures. We looked at warm season grasses, uh, grazing throughout the the year uh, in the fall with uh, brassicas, turnips, things like that. And it showed basically on a per acre basis, we can be more profitable by grazing than we can feeding TMR through those cows. Mm. As long as they're getting probably 75% of their dry matter from pasture or more, uh, we can be um, more profitable than feeding a lot of TMR. Because you you have, when you feed uh, a lot of uh, supplemented feeds to those cows, you have tractors you have all that equipment that you have to maintain and uh, with a cow in pasture you have fence and a little labor and um, they do quite well you know really based on some of those results our organic herd has gone more grass-fed in the past years since I started you know when I started we were probably on about 40 percent of the dry matter was from pasture and now we're about 80 percent of the dry matter from pasture during the grazing season our cows don't get much grain at all and it's predominantly pasture so I've seen the the results and being able to rejuvenate some of these pastures with different grass species uh, has just you know our pastures have come to life and we can get a lot more out of those pastures with our cows. You know, this in summer of 2019 here, we had uh, 270 cows, both herds grazing on pasture, uh, getting, you know, at least 40% of their dry matter from, from pasture in the conventional herd, and the organic was close to 90%. So, yeah, our pastures are very resilient, and they provide lots of feed for our cows. 
I also think about a lot of people throw their animals on their marginal land or things like that to be able to graze. And, and here we've we've had some of those what, what you could call marginal lands that maybe haven't, haven't been grazed for. An example is there was some pasture, it was old beef cattle pasture that probably hadn't been grazed in 20 years that when I started here and two years ago, we just started putting cattle back on the land. It was, it just kind of sat there and grew up to brome grass, seeded out every year, and really was nothing there. So we uh, certified it uh, organic and uh, transitioned it to pasture. And really, we've seen that pasture come back to life. Uh, This year so far, we've grazed it twice. So we're kind of getting that back in the rotation. We put a lot of animals on it at one time to really keep the grass down, get some hoof action. Maybe there's some other uh, seeds in the seed bank there that'll come through and it's really been uh, rejuvenating the, that pasture quite well and I, we're impressed we're impressed and all we did was put a bunch of cattle on it and uh, it's starting to to come back to life and uh, it doesn't look so brown and dead uh, anymore it's mm-hmm. it's actually uh, it's it's thriving do you get farmers that are coming and and uh, need some troubleshooting on their grazing operations and and where I mean what are some of the biggest questions they have? I think the 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 biggest one that that I see in some of the farms that I I work with are what what species should we use? What kind of species uh, should we have in our pasture? Uh, they sort of look to us. We've done different uh, pasture grazing and pasture management here and. I think for us, what's really settled is orchard grass, meadow fescue, uh, red and white clover, and a little alfalfa in the pasture, and that seems to work what's best for here. Uh, obviously, it, it every farm is different, so we you know can tailor some of those uh, species to those farms. Some farmers like orchard grass, and some don't. Uh, it works well here; our cows like it and they eat it. And some farms we go on, and it doesn't. So I think it's certainly farm dependent, but trying to work with these farms to be able to look at different species and a lot of them actually based on some of the cover crop stuff that we've done here is starting to put cover crops in um, and starting to graze them that's been a, a really good thing as well as being able to work with those farms and and some of the farmers that we've worked with they're like really you you can do that you can you know graze rye and mid-april and and they come here and see it and it's like wow that yes we need to do that mm-hmm. um so it's uh, been real good to be able to work with farmers and actually see some of the things that we do here be put into practice uh, on on their farms what are some of the big questions you'd like to pursue you know i'm starting to get more into looking at grazing and how it relates to climate change things like that and and you know can grazing be better for the environment than a lot of the conventional uh things are that we're doing so we're you know i'm kind of dabbling in that now a little bit working with kind of renewable energy and and grazing at the same time you know we're grazing underneath the solar panels that's a different another subject for a a, a longer day but you know we're grazing cattle underneath our solar panels and i think there's advantages to being able to utilize solar panels for grazing. We see a lot of solar going up. In my mind, we're wasting a lot of good land to put solar up when we can actually raise those solar panels up and actually graze. It wouldn't necessarily have to be cattle. We can graze sheep or goats or calves or you name it underneath them and actually utilize the land as well. So it kind of you know goes into sort of climate uh, change stuff. So I'm kind of interested in looking at more, you know, how, how does 
grazing benefit and how does the the land uh, with the cattle on it uh, you know can it can it improve the climate uh, and reduce climate change really is is what one thing that I am interested in as well we would look at that from a soil perspective as well so you can look at uh, you know carbon sequestration in the soils uh, one other thing is is to actually measure the gas emissions from from the cows uh, to be able to see what you know and we can do those comparisons here where we we could compare a grazing animal to a conventional animal and actually see what the methane emissions are off of those and you know kind of have a nice comparison right here on the same site to, uh, to be able to do that with the dairy industry in such a crisis right now i mean is that affecting a little bit what some of the research questions you're looking at or is that affecting some of the questions you're getting from farmers oh sure definitely i think you know there's a lot of issues related to uh you know cost of production labor is especially uh, another troubling uh, aspect yes we've been getting lots of questions on how to you know how can we reduce the cost of production how, how can we manage through these times to be able to do it i think grazing and looking at these alternative uh, you know, grazing cover crops might be a, a good alternative to to help get you through those times or harvesting cover crops for feed one thing that's uh, being talked about more again and that we've done here is outwintering your cattle you know do you need a barn to house your animals all the time and especially our heifers do quite well outwintered, and we we outwinter our milking cows too. So we we outwinter everything, and animals do just fine. They're healthy, they're productive. Uh, we don't see any problems with outwintering. So yeah, when you're when you don't need a lot of facilities, uh, there's lots of options that are uh, you can do that with. Let's talk about a little bit about the facilities. I know one time I was here, and you were talking a little bit about the need for better milking mm-hmm. facilities. So our dairy facility here was built in 19. 19- 72 73 okay so it's over 40 years old and we first started with a tie stall barn like many midwestern dairy herds did um you know 80 cows and now we're uh, between 250 and 300 cows and i think 20 years ago they put in a low-cost milking parlor uh, for those 80 cows and you know as as we've put cows out on grass and our cows are healthier and stay around a lot we the herd size has grown and we've well outgrown our milking facilities. So it, it takes a long time to milk 275 cows here. You know, it takes almost all day to do that. And uh, so it's a very small uh, milking parlor, just a swing nine parlor. Uh, so it, it's very undersized for what we have. Um, so we we have plans or would like to see in the future new newer milking facilities uh, to sort of really thrust our program into the into the future and and keep it viable but even being able to have newer facilities to look at some of those components that we're interested in even from a human health perspective looking at the quality of the milk with different technologies in the milking parlor all of that is i think growing and and will only continue to grow into the future we're we've also have in some of our plan is to have an organic feed mill here uh, as part of our our it would be a newer milking facility as well as an organic feed mill. So we're really able to look at organic, handle different organic grains or organic commodities that we might use for feeding our cows or just in our research program. You know, it's we have some storage for organic 
organic grains, mostly of corn and oats, mm -hmm. is what we have. Uh, we don't store our organic beans here because we don't have room. And so I think even having an organic feed mill would be able to look at different grain sources or other feed sources that we can use in our organic herd uh, um, for for different research purposes and and be able to use that. You know, we have now we have organic kernza and it's just sitting in a bunch of totes in in a in the back of the warehouse because we huh. don't have any storage for it. So um, I think that that's part of our plan too is is to have more of a dedicated organic type feed mill to be uh -huh. able to do those different things. Those are probably the two the those <laughs> yeah. are probably the two big things uh, uh -huh. for now that would really uh, help you know sort of propel the research into the future here and mm -hmm. and really make it sustainable and and. Um, for the long term here really and yeah and a lot of the research we do here you know it, of course it benefits farmers directly and mm -hmm. but it also benefits consumers and we've done lots of consumer things with it as well yeah. so it's it sort of benefits uh, all of society by what we're doing here For more on research being conducted at the University of Minnesota's West Central Research and Outreach Center, see wcroc.cfans.umn.edu. If you'd like more details on LSB's work to get legislative funding for this kind of public research, see our website at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-722-6377. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.